Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Good time unit and welcome to Deconstructive Criticism. I'm your host Aaron Flam, coming at you not live at all from Stockholm, Sweden. If you're an English-speaking listener, you have probably heard of the documentary called The Red Pill by documentary filmmaker Cassie J. The film has been protested and pulled from theatres trying to screen it in Australia, England and the United States, and its maker has been smeared publicly on TV. If you're a Swedish-speaking listener, you haven't seen a single line about the film in the media. Not a frame has been shown on television, and you've heard exactly zero words about it on Swedish state radio. Which is a bit surprising, considering it is the second most viewed documentary you can rent on Swedish YouTube at the moment. And have been for a while now. The film is about the men's rights movement, or as you might have heard of them, rape apologists and Cassie's investigation into their nefarious activities. But it is also a film about Cassie, an accomplished feminist filmmaker who has been celebrated by the left only to be shunned now when she can no longer support the theory that underlies their policies. The title of the film, The Red Pill, might be a bit confusing for Swedes, and so I should explain that it refers to the magic pill that Morpheus offers Keanu Reeves' character Neo in the film The Matrix. It is the pill that has the power to transport him beyond the world he lives in now and that has been pulled over his eyes to hide the truth from him. He is also offered a blue pill which promises to let him forget ever having met Morpheus at all. Itself not a confusing metaphor, especially in the US where the colors of the pills correspond to the colors attributed to the political spectrum. In the United States, red states are conservative and blue states are liberal. In Sweden, the left side of the political spectrum are the reds and the conservative side are the blues, so if I had to translate the title it would have to be The Blue Pill. But then I also had to change the film The Matrix and I'm not entirely comfortable with that. I noticed Cassie on the Rubin Report and became interested in her when she, in a passus only, mentioned the awesome power of the Swedish feminist movement, whereas I usually refer to them the matriarchy. And I wanted to find out what she knew of them. That's why I contacted her. Turns out she didn't know much more than she said on the Rubin Report, but it became a very nice talk anyway, about her film, and in the end about male circumcision. Cassie is very much against it, whereas I am for. As a circumcised man, I have never had any problems with it. I don't consider it to be genital mutilation, since my penis works fine. I tell you, it works fine. But since this podcast is as much about freedom of speech as it is about taboos, I cannot explore the latter without the former, I still want you to hear her speak. Please support this podcast on Patreon and please watch my latest comedy special Kejsaren i Naken on YouTube. It now has English subs. Enjoy. Welcome, uh, Miss or Mrs. Cassie J to um, Deconstructive Criticism. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you on. I'm uh, calling you from Sweden right now. I, um, I don't like to label people, usually, uh, because people are so sensitive nowadays. But is it fair to call you a documentary filmmaker? Yes. Yes, all right. So how long have you been uh, making documentary films? Well, now 10 years. I started when I was 21. And uh, before that I was acting in, in Hollywood and was involved in on-camera uh, on productions 
in front and behind the camera in that way. So I've always been interested in the film industry in some respects, but I, I transitioned to documentaries when I was 21. Okay, so you had a previous career before you were 21. Yes, yeah. <laughs> That's kind of unusual, isn't it? Yeah, well, I, I moved out to L.A. when I was 18 because it was either going to college and getting a theater degree, which my acting coach said would get me a job as a theater teacher, or going out to Hollywood when you're 18 and a, a woman and have a lot more opportunities when you're younger to get acting roles. So, yeah. And then you started making documentary films. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and... Uh, what sort of, because I don't think a lot of people here in Sweden know about you. I've been following uh, uh, both the pre-production of your uh, uh, latest film online, and I saw it online just a little while ago, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, and I think it would be important for uh, Swedish people to know about it. That's why I wanted to contact you. Uh, but uh, I want to start to talk about your previous production, because you'd, uh, you've uh, always had a certain... Well, interest, one would say, a uh, theme uh, in your previous production, right? So uh, your first film was called uh, Daddy, I Do? That's right. Yes, and that was about what? That was about the abstinence-only movement in America, which is uh, a sector of sexual education that says, wait until marriage, nothing else, and they actually go out of their way to uh, say how ineffective contraceptives can be. Uh, so it's a faith-based initiative to try to get kids to wait until marriage. Uh, and it largely happened in, in the red states, the Bible Belt in the South and the U.S. And, and there was an event that started to spring up called Purity Balls, where a father would take his daughter as young as six years old to this prom-like event, like a banquet kind of dancing event. And the girl would vow to remain a virgin until marriage, and the father would vow to protect his daughter's chastity until marriage. And uh, it, you know, it was kind of uh, kind of a strange thing for people to think about. And I thought it was interesting, and I wanted to meet people who are a part of this and why they did it, and if the girls really knew what they were vowing to at six years old. Uh, so I embarked on a journey with my mom who, my mom is my producer and at the time my camera operator for Daddy I Do. So her and I hit the road filming and, uh, eventually Daddy I Do evolved into a film about the bigger discussion of comprehensive sexual education in the U.S. So teaching abstinence, waiting until you're older because that's always, you know, uh, that can't hurt anyone by waiting as long as you can to have, start having sex. Uh, but also if they do choose to have sex, how to protect themselves from unwanted pregnancy and STDs. Uh, so that came out in 2010 and that was my first film I ever made. And it won a lot of awards, which encouraged me to continue filmmaking. Yes. I remember I, I saw it at the time and uh, I remember thinking, but don't they understand how incredibly kinky this practice of purity balls is? It's uh, amazing really, isn't it? Yeah. It is, and I don't think purity balls happen as much now, uh, but you know, it's something that happens largely in the evangelical Christian community, and uh, yeah, and, it, and of course, it's an unfortunate title, purity balls. <laughs> but uh, yeah, daddyido.com if anyone wants to see that film. And also, there must be an upper limit for uh, not having sex where it actually starts harming you. I mean, if you're Let's say, for instance, the movie 40-Year-Old Virgin talks about this problem. Mm. Not in a very, maybe, intellectual way, but still. Right. <laughs> and, and yeah, that's, you know, I, I think maybe the 40-Year-Old Virgin types is also a, a you know, ex extreme scenario that can happen from lack of information on sexual health and biology and urges and human needs and all that. Uh, so, yeah, I think just the more we can educate kids on a technical level as well as a, a, a social, cultural level to be open to this discussion and not feel weird about talking about this when you're in eighth grade or, or 13 years old in school. Uh, so, yeah, I think we should have these conversations. 
Absolutely. But after this, uh, this afforded you to embark upon uh, a journey where you made several uh, documentary films, uh, most of them about women's issues, I suppose. Yes. I've made three feature-length films, the latest being The Red Pill. Uh, and then I've made over a dozen short films. And my short films largely are women's issues-centric. Uh, so I made a film called The Story of Goldie Blocks, talking about how we need more female uh, women getting into STEM education to become engineers, because currently in the U.S. there's only 11% of engineers are women. Uh, so that was a short film, The Story of Goldie Blocks, and I made a film for the International Museum of, Museum of Women um, for Mother's Day. It was an arts installation trying to make mothers visible. Uh, and, yeah, I, I think a lot of my films have kind of focused on women's issues and stories, and that's my innate passion. Um, and then the last film, The Red Pill, was the, the change in my... <laughs> my uh, resume, I guess. Uh, so uh, how come you, uh, maybe you should start by explaining to the listener uh, what the red pill is about. Because uh, I, uh, maybe I should explain to you, when we talk about politics in Sweden, r the red side is the socialist side and the blue side is uh, the, well, the equivalent of your uh, conservative side. So if you say red pill in Swedish, uh, oh. it it should mean, if we had that expression, that you're actually swallowing the socialist pill and not the conservative pill. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Thanks for clarifying. That's good to know. Uh, well, the red pill terminology comes from the 1999 movie The Matrix. And in The Matrix, uh, the main character, Neo, is offered the choice between taking the blue pill where he will stay within the matrix, which is this false reality, this kind of you're walking through life with a film over your, your eyes. You're not really seeing the truth of where you are. Or taking the red pill, which is waking up from this sleep and seeing the harsh reality, the truth, that's very uncomfortable. And, and you, know, you won't necessarily like it, but it is the truth. Uh, so the red pill terminology, uh, that term has kind of morphed in since the film is released into any number of issues that where people are saying, if you see my perspective or see the truth here, you're taking the red pill. So environmentalist groups have used the red pill. Uh, alien conspiracists have used the red pill. And when I stumbled across the men's rights movement in 2013, they used the red pill as, as their term for seeing their, their point of view. And even the website that it came across, thevoiceformen.com, their logo was Take the Red Pill. And uh, so a lot of their online blogs and writings were say were using that metaphor, um, like, well, my first red pill experience was, and then they explain when they started to look at men's issues. Uh, so it, the term really succinctly explains my journey of making this film because I can't see the world the same way again after making the red pill. And I think a lot of viewers can't see the world the same way again after watching the red pill movie. No, I think you're right. But the movie itself is about the men's rights movement. Yes. Yes. So the red pill movie follows my year long filming journey, meeting the leaders and the followers of the men's rights movement in North America. And uh, I also interview feminists for a counter perspective. And, uh, and I had already been a feminist of about 10 years before I started filming The Red Pill. And something that I've always done for as long as I can remember is I keep video diaries, just something personal to track my evolving views on a lot of these social issues and political topics. And I, I kept a video diary while I was filming The Red Pill. And... Uh, I ended up choosing to include a few of my video diaries in the movie and make myself a part of the film's story because, uh, because I, I did transform through making this film and, and it's pretty apparent in my video diaries. Uh, but you know, I, I start off as a feminist making this film, looking to expose the men's rights movement as misogynists who want to turn back the clock on women's rights and want, uh, that are anti-gender equality. That's what I thought they were. And 
I interviewed 44 people over a year, spending up to eight hours filming each person and realized that it was a lot more nuanced than that. And they weren't anti-women. They weren't anti-equality. They were actually, I would say, even more uh, pursuing gender equality and, and wanting to address what are men's issues and how are they treated unequally in the court systems or culturally with bias. Uh, so I, you know, the film I made is the journey I went on and it's very complicated. And I think people have to watch the film to see the full <laughs> scope of it. Cause it's a lot to explain in an interview. So you did a film about the men's rights movements and, uh, I'm assuming you were met with love and open arms from the world once it was done. <laughs> Absolutely not. No, no, no. Um, I, you know, I am hard pressed to think of any film in recent history that has had many, as many petitions and protests and bannings as this film has had. And it was released in theaters in October 2016. And then we were released online, online platforms in March 2017. Uh, and so it's widely available now. And I, I don't want to uh, discredit this is the success of the movie by saying there's been so many protests and bannings because we've had great success. We're, we're currently the top selling movie on YouTube in Australia ahead of Moana and Logan and Guardians of the Galaxy and Rogue One, the Star Wars movie. I mean, of all genres, it's it's pretty you know, unheard of for a documentary to, to sell like this. Uh, so people are going to watch it. People are going, trying to find it online and they are certainly talking about it online in the forums and sharing it secretly with their friends. But that seems to be the, the trend is that a lot of people are afraid to tell their friends and family that they've watched it or that they like it and that they want other people to see it, uh, because there's such a stigma around talking about men's issues. Uh, that's why a lot of men's rights activists choose to remain anonymous. They don't want their uh, public information shared because they're worried they will lose their job. And I've heard that many people have lost their job uh, by saying they're a men's rights activist or part of the men's rights movement. Uh, so so we, are, we are doing well sales-wise, uh, but the press has uh, definitely taken the stance that they want to smear my name, my reputation, smear the film. Uh, most people who are against the film and wanting to pull it from theaters have never seen the film for themselves. Uh, but they're basically they're they're getting hysterical about the idea of there being a film about men's rights that people are actually listening to and taking pause with and considering their perspective. And you know, my film, The Red Pill, it, it doesn't promote the men's rights movement. I'm not a men's rights activist. At the end of the film, I do not become a men's rights activist. I, there are a lot of, a lot of areas that I disagree with men's rights activists in the movement. Uh, so I'm, you know, essentially a free agent. I, I don't have any label now after making the film. I no longer call myself a feminist. And, and that's could be maybe a reason why feminists are against this film is because I dropped the label feminist at the end of the film. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm um, not anti-feminist either. So. I, I saw um, I saw a clip uh, of you where you uh, it was labeled uh, why I'm not a feminist anymore, and uh, I think your exact wording was uh, learning about feminism made me leave feminism. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, <clears throat> uh, so what I said is that it wasn't learning about men's issues that made me leave feminism. It was actually learning about feminism that made me part with feminism. And when I, when I started to really listen to what men's rights activists are saying and, and go to the studies to find the, the sources and the proof behind what they're saying with all these various issues, uh, I, I realized that men's issues need to be involved in the gender equality discussion. And if we have a gender equality movement, we need to talk about these issues like suicide for men is 80 worldwide in almost all countries is roughly 80% of all suicides are men. And that's a symptom of something. It's something is happening for men where they are wanting to take their own life. And I'm shocked that we don't talk about that in the gender equality discussion within feminism. Uh, and, you know, family courts and, male disposability with as far as workplace deaths and war deaths and 
uh, lower life expectancies and men's health and the lack of funding for men's health organizations compared to women's health. Uh, so I, I found all these issues valid and needing to be discussed. And then when I would go to feminists with these issues, basically sharing what I learned from men's rights activists, I would be shut down and they would use arguments against men's rights activists that I knew weren't true. Uh, this kind of straw man argument saying that they're, uh, they're white supremacists or they're anti-women's reproductive rights, which are, they're not. Almost all the men's rights activists I met are for uh, women's reproductive rights. And uh, actually a lot of men's rights activists I met were feminists before they became men's rights activists. So they very much cared about, you know, the gender issues. And uh, so I started to see the dismissiveness within feminism, uh, also the hypocrisy and how quickly a lot of feminists can say things that are male bashing and not realize that if the genders were reversed, this would not be acceptable at all. Uh, and then beyond that, because a lot of what I'm saying here is just kind of, you know, personality traits or how they react or respond to men's issues. But beyond that, another reason why I've left feminism is because I, I believe the core platform uh, that feminists stand on is patriarchy theory. And I think that's a very harmful uh, way to base all of your conclusions and assumptions is around this theory that men throughout history and even today oppress women. And if you believe that, you can dismiss any issues men have because you believe they are the oppressors. And so, but lumping all men together uh, as if all men have oppressed all women, it, it is ignoring male victims. And it's not having, it's excusing not having compassion for male victims. Uh, so, I, I mean, there are many reasons why I left feminism. And, and just I'll throw one more out there before <laughs> I give it back to you. But uh, another reason, I, I dropped the feminist label during or just about around my Kickstarter campaign, which I did for the film. It's a crowdfunding platform. Uh, I self-financed the film with my mother and fiance for two years while we were filming. And we got denied from all grant applications for film funds and, and all my previous used to investors. Be, uh, you used to got, get almost an automatic approval, right, for earlier productions? I certainly had a lot of support, absolutely. And I had angel investors from my previous films who were very passionate about LGBT issues and women's issues. So they all shut the door on me and did not want to be a part of this film, didn't want to see a film like this be made. And I was offered funding from a very large feminist organization, a large chunk of money, and w with the caveat that they would have control over the final product. So I had to decline because there wasn't there there was no amount of money that was going to let me give up creative control over my film because it, I I knew I had to tell the journey that I went on and I had all the footage to show that journey, uh, but I, I I didn't know if it'd be marketable and I, I certainly didn't think uh, you know any kind of uh, agenda driven organization would let me tell the truth of the story I went on. So uh, I declined funding from the feminist organization and at this point. It looks like I'm never going to complete the film. Uh, I had 100 hours of footage, but I needed about $100,000 for post-production funds for editing and color and music and graphics and all these things. And I, I didn't know how to, you know, where to find the money where I can keep complete creative control. So as a last-ditch effort, I went to Kickstarter, and it was a ridiculous amount of money that I asked for on Kickstarter. I asked for $97,000, which is less than what I needed, but I, I put it out there that if this is what I need to complete the film, and if I don't raise it, the film's not going to be made. And uh, we had a four-week Kickstarter campaign, and by the end of it, we raised over double of what my asking price was. We raised $211,000. And it, you know, it's unheard of on Kickstarter for a documentary to have that much success. So it was just another indicator to me that people need this film and, and there are people all around the world that want to see this film made. And, and they gave me complete license to make the, I didn't have any contact with any of the 
Kickstarter backers during the filming or completion of the film. I didn't even meet them until after the film was released in theaters. And, uh, and a lot of them told me that, you know, we, we didn't know if you're for real, if, if you're really going to make the film you said you would make. Uh, a lot of people thought I was a feminist in disguise, going to um, try to do a smear uh, or, or a hit piece on men's rights activists. Fair and, enough. That's how you started uh, out, isn't it? So, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, anyway, so so I was able to complete the film that I always intended to make, and it was wonderful. But during the Kickstarter campaign, uh, I, I sent the Kickstarter link to all of my previous contacts from my previous films, people who supported and uh, like publicized my film on their website. So I sent it to my contacts at Upworthy and having to post and all these different you know, mainstream platforms trying to get some eyeballs on my Kickstarter campaign. And they wrote back saying, your, your trailer doesn't show enough of men's rights activists being violent and freaking out or yelling at you. We want to see more of that. Uh, and I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. And so they wouldn't, none of them would publish or talk about it. Uh, and then... I had a lot of feminists start to uh, start writing blogs to take down my reputation and my credibility. And one radical feminist blogger in particular had a, he zeroed in on me and wanted to make up whatever he could to uh, make me seem like something I'm not. And I was just really uh, surprised because I also read his writings for, you know, the many years prior to making this film. And I, Thought, you know, I thought I trusted what he wrote and, and also a lot of the news outlets that did start to write kind of smear campaign stories about me I used to trust, like Vice and The Guardian and Village Voice. And uh, so I, I started to see, I guess, the matrix, the, you know, the, the facade uh, and how uh, the average person is being fed these lies and how easily they can be fed these lies. And so because a lot of the smear campaign was coming from feminists, I just couldn't see how I could remain <laughs> within the movement when clearly they don't want me a part of the movement and I don't agree with what they're doing. Completely understandable. Uh, I googled around in uh, Sweden uh, on the Swedish Google, uh, so to speak, um, to see if uh, you had many mentions uh, but I must say, uh, the Swedish feminist movement, or just Sweden as a whole, seems to give you the classical silent treatment. There is almost nothing about you except for one men's rights activist blog, who is probably just one person. We used to have a men's rights activist uh, sort of a movement in our uh, in the early 2000s, maybe. 10 people, but they were crushed by matriarchy. So uh, good riddance. And <laughs> <laughs> because on Rubin Report, you mentioned, I, I saw you on Rubin Report, and that's what made me go see your film. Oh, yes. And thank uh, you. my pleasure. You mentioned uh, Swedish feminists just in passing, yes. and it's only in passing in your film as well, The Red Pill. But I was wondering if you. Uh, during your production process, found out more and what you could, in that case, share with me? Mm. Uh, well, I can't say much, uh, both because I, I've largely focused on North America while I was filming and the research I did. 
uh, but also because I don't want to say too much and get in trouble. <laughs> uh, but what, what I could say is that I was shocked to find that in Sweden uh, with the, the man tax, which it was dubbed, that's not the actual, that's not really what it was called. I think it was called the externalities of something. Uh, but the man tax was, uh, the idea behind it was we should, this, I guess, feminist group who was pushing for this was saying that men should pay more in taxes for the domestic violence shelters in Sweden. Uh, but something I was surprised to find was that either the leader or one of the leaders of this initiative and this large feminist group in Sweden was connected to Jane Fonda, who lives in the U.S. She's an actress and Jane Fonda is a part of uh, this new men's center that is springing up in, in New York uh, called the um, Center for Men and Masculinities. And it's being headed by Dr. Michael Kimmel, who is a very well-known feminist author and, and professor here in the States. And I interviewed him in my film. And so it's being headed by Dr. Kimmel and Gloria Steinem is a part of it and uh one of the Arquettes, not Patricia Arquette, but her sister, I think, is on the board, and Jane Fonda is on the board. And so I, I was just fascinated to see that the, the big feminist movement in Sweden is connected with the big feminist movement here in the States. So, yeah, I found it fascinating. I know uh, because I've watched you online that you don't like it when interviewers uh, break the interview mold and go in and involve themselves in the interview. But uh, first of all, I'm a comedian. I'm not a documentary filmmaker. And, uh, <laughs> but I, I can tell you a little story. The, the thing is this, that we have a historian, a professor of history called Yvonne Hirdman. And in 1987, she wrote a, a small pamphlet, really, not no longer than 37 pages, called The Gender System, Reflections of the Female subordina Social Subordination to Men. Hmm. Now, it uh, was basically, uh, from an academic sta standing point, she took uh, the classical uh, Marxist view of the class system, the class society. The, it's a pyramid. You've probably seen posters of it when you were younger in, in dorms and so forth. Um, and Swedes are very familiar with the class system because this was the first social democratic, socialist democratic state in the world. Uh, and they are, uh, well, indoctrinated with it. It's basically uh, the religion. Uh, I jokingly say after uh, to other immigrants or people of, uh, well, foreign des descent here in Sweden that uh, the class system is the whites' uh, way of telling each other apart. But anyway... Uh, mm -hmm. it, it's mostly a joke. Uh, <laughs> but um, she took that class system and instead of uh, having the working class the patri uh, uh, and economic interests and priests and kings, she put in gender. Mm. Yes, and that was it, basically. Uh, she uh, took a Mar Marxist concept and, and morphed it with feminism and uh, she produced this little pamphlet, which is basically just a loose conspiracy theory where she doesn't really define any of the concepts. She just raises a lot of questions and wants to have a discussion. Now, three years later, in 1990, this becomes part of uh, state policy um, because her little pamphlet is suddenly included in one of us, one of our uh, government official inquiries or whatever, which usually, and they are usually used to uh, construct policy. And I don't know how much you know about Sweden, but we're great believers in social engineering programs. Hmm. Uh, because we believe that humans are blank slates that you can mold whichever way you want if you just program them with the right cultural information. It is, in essence, a very collectivist culture, Sweden. And we also appreciate uh, conformity and unity above all else. So uh, anyway, it got into a government document and became state policy, official state policy. So the theory of patriarchy in Sweden is actually state policy. And yeah. uh, yes, and it's been quite a ride, my dear. 
My, my, ah, I had no idea. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, Patriarchy is, uh, it was one of those things that it took a long time for me to start to break down because I've been, had been a feminist for so long and I was so indoctrinated in my psyche and the way I looked at the world. Uh, but, but something that doesn't fit with patriarchy theory is all the ways that women are privileged and all the ways that men are disadvantaged. And, uh, it's, it's just, it's really fascinating to me because we don't talk about female privilege and, uh, you know, at times I wonder if people are fighting for the victimhood status because that is the power position. If you are the victim, you will have more support than the other way around. Uh, But yeah, that's really interesting. Yes, it is. Uh, According to official uh, Swedish uh, state policy, we are a cis patriarchy. Uh, not the worst cis patriarchy in the world, but we're still a cis patriarchy, and we below, believe in the gender wa- wage gap. That's part of official, the, our official statistics bureau. We've had uh, gender pedagogy in schools now uh, for thirty years, and uh, the gender grade gap between boys and girls is the second largest in the world, uh, right after Finland, who has the largest in the world and has also a gender perspective on education. The gender grade gap, is that girls who are skipping grades or boys who are falling behind? No, the gender grade gap is the uh, gap in grades between boys. Oh, how they... So A, B, C, F. Okay. Yes, and girls generally get better grades than boys because they mature quicker, they're more well-behaved, they appreciate uh, uh, being perceived as good and efficient and uh, boys are, uh, well, they're less attentive and so on and so forth. So there's always a gender grade gap. But, but uh, usually boys are better at physics and math and girls are better at re- reading and languages. And, uh, but in Sweden, uh, in the last 30 years, we have been so successful, if that is the right term, that boys now uh, don't even excel in math and physics. Wow. So, so the girls have passed in every subject. Do you so, see that this is being talked about in the media? No, not at all. We're, uh, it's, uh, we treat problems by using the silent treatment. It, <laughs> it really works well until everything blows up in your face. <laughs> oh, dear. Wow. Yes. Uh, so that's why I wanted to talk to you with a connection to Sweden. Um, <clears throat> and, I, and you already skipped ahead to my questions about why you don't call yourself a feminist anymore. But in this clip where you uh, say that you don't call yourself a feminist anymore, you you address uh, men's issues as human rights issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and could you please just uh, relate to my listeners what you view as uniquely men's issues that are still human rights issues? and what, mm-hmm. And what you meant by that? Well, I think the most obvious one that comes to my mind, and I don't know the statistics in Sweden, how prevalent this issue is, but uh, very much in the United States, infant male circumcision, genital mutilation happens routinely. Uh, Is that similar in Sweden? Not really. We don't. uh, Well, it didn't used to be. Uh, There was a big uh, discussion back maybe when I was a child, about Jewish circumcision, but we're a small minority here. Uh, And now we have a larger Muslim majority who also practice male circumcision. But I don't really think it's uh, an issue. Not anymore. Yeah. I don't know the exact statistics, but I think it's still around 70% of all boys born in the U.S. have this done. And uh, it's something, it's it's not a huge chapter in my film because I, I think it's, especially in the U.S., it's such a sensitive topic. Most people haven't even thought about it before as a gender issue. And so then when they hear about it, their instant reaction is uh, being flabbergasted that it would even be brought up as a men's issue or a human rights issue. But we have, and also something to note is that men's rights activists who are uh, anti-circumcision or intactivists, they are not saying that it's similar to female genital mutilation or that 
that uh, male genital mutilation is worse than female. They, they don't say that at all, and they don't intend to suggest that. Uh, but it is a, a violation of consent and bodily integrity, your rights to choose uh, how you, you want your, um, your body to be. And, you know, this happens to boys usually a couple of days after they're born. And uh, even in the U.S., I don't go into this in my film, but I learned that our many circumcisions that are done for lower income families are funded by the state. And so these are taxpayer dollars that are being funneled to, I, I don't know how many, but a lot of infant male babies being circumcised. And uh, anyway, so, so there's no country in the world that outlaws infant male genital mutilation. Uh, and so, you know, I do think that is a human rights issue. Uh, especially when you start to really look into the issue and realize that there's no uh, valid argument as to why this should be done. All the no, studies show that there's... Go ahead. No, uh, well, um, I think most Swedes would uh, agree with you. They're very secular people, and they would say that uh, male genital mutilation or uh, circumcision is also child abuse. And I have no rational argument to defend the fact that I'm circumcised except aesthetic arguments. And, uh, yeah, that's basically it, I suppose. Uh, freedom of religion. No? Well, I, I think oh, a, a great also, way to counter... Also, yeah. I really learned not to trust anyone at a very young age. Sorry. Yeah. I, I can't imagine. And even feminist group, because I really went down the rabbit hole into this issue and I don't go into it enough in my film, but, uh, it, I would constantly see feminist groups talking about, uh, so definitely the importance of breastfeeding and, and for many different reasons, but the connection between mother and child and the skin to skin contact. And even right after a child is born to have a mother hold the child is important for both of their, you know, chemistry and bi biology to connect. And so this, this is constantly talked about in women's groups and, uh, in feminist groups. And so I was just thinking how, you know, we obviously place a lot of importance on these little moments of touching and being and caring and and looking into your baby's eyes and all these things. So how can you think that strapping a two-day-year-old baby boy to a table with, you know, like Velcro uh, strips on his arms to hold him down and then mutilating him down there? And so a lot of times there is no kind of anesthesia. And, and if there is, it, it's not, you know, completely putting him out that he doesn't feel anything. And so I... But here's the thing. I, uh, I interviewed a lot of men's rights activists who are intactivists, and I, I heard their arguments, and I, I was so uh, – I had a lot of walls up to this issue because I just never thought about it before. And a lot of girls, especially in the U.S. with the show Sex in the City, you would they would make fun of guys who were intact uh, and say how they, they wouldn't be with a guy who's not circumcised. And so it's very much kind of embedded in our pop culture to shame guys who aren't circumcised. So, so I would hear the men's rights activists and activists talk about these issues. And I, I really didn't get it until, uh, someone told me, if you see it happen, you will, you would never do that to your child. So as a documentarian researcher, I, I was hard pressed to find it, but I finally found a medical training video of a boy being circumcised. And the scream is like nothing I've ever heard before. It is completely different than a normal baby's cry. It was blood curdling, and I can't imagine what that subconsciously does to a child and how they do walk through the rest of their life having had that done to them, having that trauma embedded in them. And so, I, yeah, I, there are a lot of feminists who say they are anti-male circumcision or anti-infant male circumcision because of course when a when a guy is growing up he can choose whatever he wants to do if he wants to do it for aesthetic reasons or whatever uh but it's not talked about enough and it and they definitely don't make it a part of the feminist platform or the gender equality platform to address this issue 
so yet another reason why I just I didn't see feminism as being all encompassing to the full gender equality discussion. I understand. <clears throat> so uh, and there were other um, uh, things that uniquely affect male. There was something about false paternity. Uh, well, paternity fraud is, uh, so for people who don't know what that is, it's when a, a father later in life finds out that the child he's been raising as his own child is actually not his. And this can be for many different reasons. Either the, the woman didn't know that it was his child, but she was having affairs or sleeping with a few people. Uh, or it could be, a a malicious act that she did know he wasn't the father, but she chose to let him believe that he was either for financial reasons for, or for him to stay with her. Or she wanted that family unit instead of another. Uh, and there's no repercussion for a woman who knowingly uh, misleads a, a man into thinking that he's the father of her child. There's no repercussions. And, and that's shocking to me that you don't hold someone accountable for that kind of, you know, ruining someone's you know complete world to find out that kind of information and, and of course the fathers still are connected oftentimes to the child that they thought were theirs and, and now depending on how they go through the legal process now he may not have any rights to visitation to see his child if if they do the paperwork to transfer paternity uh, or uh, if they don't transfer paternity and, and put it on the legal books that so if they just remain uh, that that this child is his, even though it's biologically not his child, uh, he can still be indebted to paying child support for this child that knowingly the paternity test proves that it's not his, but the birth certificate says that it's his child. And there, there's one story in The Red Pill that we show where a man is owing $30,000 worth of child support for a child that paternity tests prove is not his child. But because his name was written on the birth certificate, he's he owes this or he's facing jail time. Uh, so it's it, it's amazing how how many different ways women can uh, abuse men in, in family court and that there's no repercussion for it. Of course not. Women are always victims and men are always perpetrators. That is uh, official <laughs> Swedish doctrine. You can quote it if you want to. Um, so uh, I want to thank you so much for participate can, uh, to, uh, for participating in, in the podcast. Could I? Uh, do you have any projects lined up? What are you working on now? Um, I am looking for my next film topic. I like to keep busy, so now I'm starting to look at what's the next two or three years of my life going to be <laughs> uh, focused on. And I, I I haven't picked a topic yet, and I, I can't tell all the ideas, but I. I am interested in, in exploring stories that the average filmmaker is too afraid to tell because a lot of these issues that I cover, or at least the red pill, uh, many people told me was career suicide, and possibly that's true. I, I don't think I would get the same kind of support uh, moving forward from mainstream uh, filmmaking communities. But, uh, but as long as I can remain independent and uh, you know hope to <laughs> hope to claw my way up at, at completing another film, then I intend to do a topic that maybe others are too afraid to do. Uh, and also, it, so I believe it, the only surefire way in Sweden to watch the Red Pill, I think, is is Vimeo, V I M E O. That's how I uh, saw it. Is that how you saw it? Okay, because yeah. I don't know if we're on iTunes or Amazon Prime or. Okay, sorry about that. It, it depends on how the distributor works with the different territories, and for some reason, some countries choose to not release the film on their platform. You can rent it on Vimeo, no problem. And uh, also, I'd like to pitch you, if you are out of ideas or looking for new ideas, please do documentary about gender politics in Sweden, how it all started and spread to your country and to England and to France and to Finland and so on and so forth, because I think that would be a... A real uh, metzia to make the world, I think. Um, and uh, do, do you think uh, Sweden kind of led the way in, in a lot of these issues for absolutely. other countries? Absolutely, yes. Mm. We have invested more in this uh, than uh, 
any other country in the world, to, as far as I know. Uh, Sweden, uh, Stockholm University, when I attended there, I think, decided that they wanted to be uh, best at gender science in the world. Of course, that would be an easy task, since no one wants to participate in that race, really, especially anymore. Uh, I also wanted to ask you, have you seen a Norwegian uh, comedian? He's actually uh, originally a sociologist, but then he turned comedian. He has made a, a series called Janevask. It means no. bra brainwashed uh, in uh, English. Oh, yes, I have seen that series, yeah. It's yeah, on that... YouTube, unless uh, yeah. So and and after yeah. he made that, they actually stopped funding gender research in in or gender science in Norway. Oh wow! Yes, so that but, had a big impact then. Uh, absolutely, and that uh, I tried to pitch that to Swedish state television for years, and they didn't want to have anything to do with it, and uh, they s don't acknowledge it exists. Uh, Swedish papers don't mention that Norway has changed its policy on this. Uh, so uh, it's uh, an interesting place, Sweden, and uh, there's lots of good here, and there's uh, lots of crazy stuff going on. So uh, if you're looking for your next project, that's my pitch, at least. All right. Well, thank you so much, I, and thank you for having this chat and letting me share my piece. I'm so used to interviews where uh, people edit me out of context and or, or try to do you know gotcha moments on me. So I really appreciate this you know honest, open conversation. Uh, no, I have no interest in that, and this will come up both as a sound file on SoundCloud and as a, well, video feed on YouTube uh, in due time. And I want to thank you so much for participating and lending me an hour of your time. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you for listening to Deconstructive Criticism. Please support this podcast on Patreon, and please watch my latest comedy special, Kejsaren i Naken, on YouTube. It now has English subs. Until next time... Good time unit. Den här podden är skriven och inspelad av mig, Aron Flam, och klippt och mixad av Toste Severin. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.